Good morning. Again, if you would, please turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, help me this morning be clear with your word, with your servant, Abraham, with your covenant that you made with him that has everything to do with us. Help us hear with hearts of wonder and intense delight in your mercy toward us sinners. Thank you, Father. Glorify your name. Amen. This is week 13 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. So far, we have seen in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, the foundational themes of redemptive history, that God is God and God chose to create and create for His glory, particularly through humanity, that they would glorify Him by trusting in Him for everything. And then the fall of man, which spread through the human race up until today and will continue to do so. But as God pronounced judgment and brought it and will bring it again, He also pronounced mercy. I will put enmity Satan between your offspring and the woman's offspring. And He unfolded how He was doing that through new birth. The line of Seth, the line of Cain, until the intermarriages about destroyed the godly line and God demonstrated His judgment and His profound mercy in preserving the godly line of the born-agains. And now we come to chapter 12. We arrive at that point now in human history which is going to prove to be pivotal in shaping the course of the world. Not just during this time, but for all eternity. God, as we have seen, like, like building a highway from beginning to end, He knows the end from the beginning. He is in the process of saving many persons for His glory. And the way He goes about it is probably not the way we would have gone about it. God now zeroes in on one man. Abram is his name. He's a worshiper of false gods. An idol worshiper. From the land of Ur, of the Chaldees, and what God does in encountering him has unbelievable implications for world history up till today and for eternity. So let's look in chapter 12 of Genesis, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house 
to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There it is. I mean, from our perspective, if you pretend you never knew this story, it just seems to come out of the blue. But from God's eternal purposes, He comes to this undeserving idolater in complete sovereign grace. And He says with life-changing words, I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And thus begins the people of Israel, the Jewish nation. God chose one man, one family, and that's how He begins now, from Noah on, what He's doing in redemptive history. Why didn't He just send Jesus then? Why didn't He send His Son in Genesis 12? in order to die for sinners and to rise from the dead and get the Great Commission going. He didn't. And he has his reasons. So instead, for almost 2,000 years from what we just read, God is concerned almost exclusively with one small, tiny group of people on earth. Israel. The Jews. This people who will be stiff-necked and hard-hearted and repent and have a soft heart and go up and down in a roller coaster ride and God has them record their history. God wrote a book. Now, He could have designed salvation and done it, I guess, any other way He wanted to. But contrary to all human expectations, for His own perfect eternal purposes, God in His grace went to one man who didn't deserve a thing and promised through Him to bless the whole world. And thus began 2,000s of years of history, which is going to ultimately culminate in God in the fullness of time sending forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law, of Moses, which hasn't happened yet. That'll be another 500 years down the line. He wanted Jesus to come when He wanted Him to come, for everything is then set.
And so this covenant with Abraham, it is of crucial importance for every Christian in the world today. Every person in this room, what happened almost 4,000 years ago is very personal to every believer. And everything that is written about Abraham, according to Paul, it was written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so, as we look at it, three major questions I want to address this morning about the covenant that God made with Abraham. First is, what are the promises that he made to Abraham? Secondly, what are the conditions of this covenant he made with Abraham? And thirdly, who are the true descendants of Abraham. So first, the promises. There's kind of group them into three groups that we'll see in the story of Abraham. And the first promise is that he says to Abraham, from you, your physical descendant, I'm going to give them to you. Many, 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 many. You're going to become the head of a nation of people. And I'm going to give you and your descendants land. For instance, in chapter 15, verse 5, we read this. And God the Lord brought Abram outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then He said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. And in chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord said to him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And in chapter 15, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So that's the first group of promises that he makes to Abraham about he is going to have descendants, and they're going to be numerous, and he's going to give them a land. The second, I, 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 I'll say promise, that is embedded in Genesis, in the story of Abraham, is far beyond anything else he could give to him or his descendants. It's right there in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This verse, which is quoted 
numerous times in the New Testament. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. God justifies Abraham because of his faith. Now the context of when this now happens, chapter 12, God says, leave and go to the country, I tell you. That was ten years earlier. God's already promised him children. And his wife Sarah is still barren. Ten years sojourning in the land he promised, and they do not have a child. That's the context. So look at verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 15. Then God says in that context, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, that is your servant, Eliazar, this man shall not be your heir, Abram. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then the Lord said, So shall your offspring be. So God promises that He's going to act on behalf of Abraham and fulfill His promise. And what is stunning is that Abraham believed. He trusted against everything he could feel or see, nature. My wife is too old to have kids even if she were not barren. But God said, I'm going to do that. And thus, He trusted God. Which again, as we have seen in previous weeks, is stunning. Taking into account the fall of man in the garden. But it was stunning that Abel offered a sacrifice by a heart of faith. And so we see Abraham as one of those whom God has separated is the woman's seed from others by regeneration, proven by his heart to say, yes, okay, you're God. You'll do it. And that God-glorifying faith was the means through which God gave to Abraham the incomparable gift of justification. Abraham's sins, in other words, were forgiven. And he is declared to stand righteous before him. Not that Abraham will not ever sin again. He will. And it shows up in the text. But the point is, his sins are forgiven. And as a sinner, therefore, God will not condemn him for them. A barrier between Abraham and a righteous, holy God has been 
removed. His sins will not lead to condemnation. For God reckoned His faith. And thus, righteousness is given to Him. He is declared perfectly righteous, though He is a sinner. And what that means now, for the rest of Abraham's life, God is on his side. He's not against him anymore. God is after fulfilling His promises and doing good to Abraham with all of his heart. Listen to the way this is expressed in Genesis 17, verse 7. God says, I will establish My covenant between Me and you, Abram, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Here's My covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. So he must mean not, I'm not God, but I'm going to become God. He must mean, I'm God to you in a way that I am not to others. Yeah, he is. He's the one who declares you, Abraham, justified, righteous. When God imputed, put to the count, in other words, His view towards Abraham, I reckon him to be righteous. He imputes righteousness to him through Abraham's faith. He forgave all his sins and he began to pursue him with goodness and mercy. All the days of his life, I am God to you. That's a great promise, but that's not all. Just think about it. If God is God and God is uncreated, the one who has been eternally in himself, if he's actually good to Abraham, there must be life after death. If he is just, there must be life after death. That's what it implies. Now, if you have a problem with that, I'm going to turn you to Jesus' words. This is what he says in Matthew 22, 31 to 32. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus comments. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, there is a resurrection coming. That's why Jesus quoted the Exodus passage. 
Which means, for Abraham and for all who are his children, who are justified by faith, death will not destroy their communion with him. Amen. And then there's a third group of promises of, that God makes to Abraham that these blessings, these promises, are not just for your physical descendants. They are for the Gentiles. All the nations also. God's purpose, the get-go, is to bless the whole world. Remember? Chapter 12, verse 2 to 3. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families or the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so even though God began His redemptive process with one single individual, He has in view the whole world as He's building this highway of redemption. He has a plan. He has a clear purpose for the centuries and millennia to come. And so, we see God made these glorious promises. Your physical seed, Abraham, giving him land, justification by faith. But not just for you and your people, Israel, but for the Gentiles and all the world ultimately. Those are the promises of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, leads us to the second major question about this covenant. What are the conditions of it? Or are there any conditions to it? Is the covenant of Abraham unconditional? Or is it conditional? God says to Abram, Go to the land I'll show you. And I will bless you. Just hypothetically, question. If Abraham refused to go and did not go, would God have blessed him? I think the answer is obviously no. So in some sense, the covenant promise of blessing him was conditional. Now, I bring this up because I, I, throughout my Christian life, I run into people who struggle with what I just said because of things they had been taught. And one of the things I think brings confusion to them is that they have a false assumption in their head in trying to say something like Abraham in that covenant with God was conditional. Because... It's this false assumption that, well, if it's conditioned upon something that Abraham would do, well, then the promises God made cannot be certain. 
of fulfillment. Maybe they'll happen. Maybe they won't. In other words, if a person must meet certain conditions in order to benefit from the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, then the fulfillment of those promises cannot be absolutely sure. Because it depends on finite, sinful creatures meeting the condition. Does that make sense? Okay. But that's just not true. Because deeper and embedded in that false assumption is this conviction that any human being is autonomous, is ultimately self-determining. Not. You know this new covenant promise in Ezekiel when God says, listen carefully to His words, I, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So if God puts his spirit in a person and thus causes the person to walk in his statutes, and if you just apply that to the Abrahamic covenant, for instance, and thus fulfill the conditions of the covenant, then the promise can be both conditional upon the obedience and absolutely certain of fulfillment. Because God is ultimately sovereign over it. There are no ifs in what will happen. So if God commits himself, in other words, when he calls Abraham to work in him so that Abraham fulfills the conditions of the covenant, then there's no inconsistency in saying that the promises that God made to Abraham are absolutely certain, sure, steadfast, and irrevocable. And also conditional. In other words, the promises God made to Abraham cannot not happen. So, that's what's implied in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Go and I'll bless you. But in chapter 22, 16 to 18, it's crystal clear that His promises will come about because conditions are met. In 22, verses 16 to 18, this, in its context, is after Abraham, down the road, has his child Isaac, and Isaac grows into a 13-year-old boy, and God says, now go take him up to Mount Moriah, tie him up, and kill him. And of course, God wouldn't really have him do that. He was testing him to show the world. Abraham, okay, you promised. I'm going to have descendants. This is the one. If I kill him, you got to raise him from the dead. 
That's how deep his faith was. And so God sends the angel, stops his hand, and then the angel of the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Listen to the grammar. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Hear the grammar again. Because you have obeyed my voice. That's why I will bring these promises to pass. It sounds conditional. In Genesis 18, 19, God says concerning Abraham, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Hear the grammar. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. If the promises made to Abraham are to be fulfilled according to that passage, then his people must keep the way of the Lord. And so, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, they are both conditional and they are absolutely sure. God Himself will cause the conditions to be met in order to bring about the promises. Now, no one should jump to the conclusion that in any way does that make, and here's some New Testament words now, that in any way does that kind of condition make the Abrahamic covenant a covenant of works. What do we mean by works here? Works in the way Paul speaks of it negatively, which destroys grace, means things, activities done in self-reliance with the idea or the main mentality or, or the purpose of endeavoring to earn God's favor, promises, or stuff from Him. That's what works mean in the negative sense. But as you read the Abrahamic covenant, the obedience which Abraham had was the outcome of his faith in God's gracious promises. He obeyed and left Ur and went to the land. 
He obeyed and grabbed Isaac and went to Mount Moriah. Why? To earn something? No. Because He's God. Look what He's promised me. Who else? We'll hear this later down through the centuries. Has the words of life. So of course, He goes with any mentality of an employee helping God out with something? No. But I want those promises that you promise so much. What must I do? I want to position myself there to get them. It's because Abraham was so confident in God's magnificent promises that he would just I know what I see around me I can't figure out the future if I kill Isaac now but you're bigger than all of life and it's called faith now just to help out with this I want you to turn to the book of Romans for a moment in chapter 4 because the apostle Paul interprets this verse Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him or imputed to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. And then Paul says in verse 4, to the one who works his wages are not a gift but are what is due. That's what Paul means by works. A mentality. I worked for you. You owe me. You had a need, and I supplied the need. You owe me. No grace involved there. That's works in the sense of an employee. I hire you to do this job. We have a pact. I'll pay you this much. To approach God that way is sinful. Always. For God is not a man that He is served by human hands as if he needed anything. Abraham obeyed the voice just like an employee will obey the voice of the boss or the employer. Abraham obeyed the voice of God, but what was going on in those two are very different. See, hopefully, if your physician says you're going to die, if you don't obey me, I hope you will trust him or her and obey what they tell you to do. That's very different than earning something from your employer. You don't. It's the promise and the expertise of the physician that says, you have what I need. Tell me what to do. That's what faith is. 
If you go home and disobey, you don't fill the prescriptions, you don't get the surgery, you can say you believe and trust your physician all you want, but your actions are proving you don't. Abraham obeyed. And so Paul, again, he says, to the one who works, his wages are not a gift. In other words, they're not the same word grace, but it's what is due. And then he says this in verse 5. He gives the correct interpretation. And to the one who does not work, but, but instead believes or trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Don't miss it. Paul is saying, if you want God's blessing of justification, of righteousness, like Abraham got, you must not work. If you're working, like verse 4, stop it. That's what he's saying. It is to the person who does not work, but believes. He does not mean, oh no, work, but just make sure you got faith along with it. That's not what he means. It's to the person who does not work. In the sense that you have something to offer to God. And thus now, over against other persons, you have somehow earned that promise or that gift of righteousness. The person who does not work, but believes God's promise. And then your actions will show whether you believe God is faithful or not. That's what we see in Abraham. Obedience is the necessary outcome of truly trusting in God's promises. That's why God tested him for the world to see how deep his faith grew. Take your son, your only son. I know, Abraham, I promised I'm going to make you the father of a multitude. So take your only son and kill him. And he was about to. And God wouldn't let him stop his hand. Because he believed. That promise. That's why obedience of Abraham or down through the generations is always the evidence of faith. Not something added to faith. So obedience is made a condition of inheriting the promises which are granted by grace to be received through faith. 
So God can turn around and just say, and because Abraham did this, therefore I will bring these promises. And this means that the Abrahamic covenant is just like the promises of salvation through Jesus Christ. They both have conditions. Not on works, but on the condition of faith. Faith alone. And as our forefathers would say correctly, but that faith which is saving is never alone. It has an inevitable evidence, imperfectly, but genuinely, of obedience and repentance. And that's why when you open up the New Testament in the Gospel of John, you can read this and say, yes, I'll take it at face value. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not... Why did he change the verb? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Two ways of salvation. Faith, obedience. Or is the faith that has eyes to see always going to put that life on a trajectory? Not of perfection, but of genuine obedience. That's why later the Writer to the Hebrews will write in Hebrews 5, verse 9, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who... What? Obey Him. It's what it says. But if you ever see that obey there, in the sense that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, <laughs> that kind of work, then you've missed the boat. But when you understand the difference between works in order to merit and the obedience that flows from a heart of trust and faith in God and His, His promises, then it makes all the sense in the world to you. He is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So the covenant of Abraham and the Gospel of Jesus Christ are both of grace. Because in both, the gracious, merciful promises are made to sinners. And they are to be received by the hands of faith. Alone. Faith trusts the great physician of the soul and of eternity. Faith trust. No one else has the words of real happiness forever that I desire. Let's go, Jesus.
Jesus, wherever you go, I want to go. It's faith. It's a heart which trusts that God is absolutely faithful. It trusts that, yes, through Christ, He is pursuing me 120 miles an hour down Interstate 5 with goodness and mercy, even when I start to run from Him. Oh, turn my heart, oh Lord. And thus it inevitably obeys. Inevitably comes back again and again to repentance. Inevitably turns from the flesh to walk by the Spirit. And so that brings us to the third then major question. Who are the heirs of this covenant ultimately? The promises made to Abraham. In Genesis 17.4, God says this, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father not just of one nation, but of a multitude of nations. And so that text, and numerous others, even where the covenant began, is clear that the promises made to Abraham are not ultimately restricted to the Jewish people. Abraham will father descendants who belong to many nations. It is the seed of Abraham that's going to inherit his blessing. And the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, the children of Abraham will ultimately include many nations other than Israel. It's embedded in the text in Genesis. And of course, when Christ comes, so much which was mysterious, right? It's how Paul talks, was made clear. And so what we see hinted at there in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament of the Gentiles will be included is made clear in the New Testament. I can go for an hour and a half easy, but let me give you one. Romans 9. This is what Paul writes. Romans 9, starting with verse 6 through 8. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Okay, stop. Paul recognizes in the first century himself being a Jew, all the twelve apostles being Jews. He recognizes, though, as the decades go on now, in the first three decades, that the vast majority of Jews are stiff-arming the Messiah. The preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Only a smaller portion that are hearing are coming to faith in Him. And it breaks Paul's heart. And he says, what's the problem? Is God's promise really not sure? And his answer is, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Okay, okay Paul, you've got to help me. Now why? Here's the Apostle. Here's the reason why. Because not 
all, or meaning everybody, not everybody who is descended from Israel, physically, belongs to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his physical descendants. But, and now he goes to the text of Scripture. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. And so Paul's answer to the problem, has God's promises failed? Has His Word failed? Is no. It hasn't. Even though now in the first century as he writes, many Jews, the vast majority of them, are unbelieving and are still under God's wrath. But the Word of God hasn't failed because the promises were never made to every physical descendant of Abraham. That's his argument. Just as Isaac, Abraham, had two sons. Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is his son, but he wasn't an heir of the promise. Isaac was an heir of the promise. He had two sons in his wife's womb at the same time. And Esau was not the heir of the promise. But Jacob was. And as Paul will go on to say, and so also throughout the history of Israel, there has always been a true remnant portion of Israel who are the heirs of the full covenant blessings given. And the rest were not the seed of Abraham. Because even though physically they may have descended, and religiously descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve tribes, they do not share Abraham's faith. I don't mean content, a body of knowledge. Heart that's born again and trusts in God. The remnant did. Joshua did. Moses did. Caleb did. David did. Jeremiah did. Habakkuk did. And ten thousands of others that you'll never know their name until the resurrection did. And that's why when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he could look at his fellow Jews and those who were hard-hearted and unrepentant and say to them, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And that's why Jesus Himself 
said to those Jews who rejected him, if you were Abraham's children, implying you're not. If you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing what Abraham did. Believe. And they didn't. So in other words, many Israelites are not the seed of Abraham, which will inherit the promises given to Abraham. And that didn't make Paul happy in one sense. We all experience this in our lives, our families, our friends. So did Paul. It grieved him to his heart. He even makes outlandish comments, which can't be true. Which myself would be accursed, cut off from God for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Rhetorically, it worked for me. Okay. But Paul. He loved many of them. But ultimately, Paul saw because Jesus revealed the mysteries to him. And he lays it out in Romans 11, and we don't have time for the whole thing, but in short, Paul said, God knows what he's doing, and he has a plan. And he had called Israel, and Israel is a special people physically throughout the generations and still remains in that context to be that. And what God is doing that with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, is that a hardening has happened upon Israel during this time, which is called the times of the Gentiles. And it happened so that from the rejection of the Gospel, then God will spring from that out into all the nations of the world, the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is complete, which it isn't. And then, through that, His purpose is to make Israel jealous. And then He will pour out His mercy upon Israel and bring them to Jesus before the end comes. And so, I'm wrapping up. I want you to hear, hear, these things that are there in the Genesis text, they're hinted at, and then they're crystal clear in the coming of Christ. So hear the Apostle Paul speak from Galatians chapter 3. Know this then, that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. And Jesus was sent, and He was hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come 
to the Gentiles. So that we together, Jew and Gentile, might receive the promised Spirit through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then you can just hear Paul, don't you get it? And if, if you are in Christ, and you belong to Him, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. So who are the seed of Abraham? Who are the inheritors of these awesome promises of the Abrahamic covenant? Everyone who believes in Jesus. Are you a believer? Then you're an heir. You're an heir. And just as it was said of Abraham, it's said of everyone who is in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You have been declared righteous. You've been justified by faith alone. Which means God is for you with all His heart all His affections, all His eternal good will. He is working in you what is pleasing in His sight, though even at times painful now. He will pursue you all the days of your life. And He will on that day raise you from the dead just like He raised His Son. And we will be with Him forever. His promises are sure. You can say them this way. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His promise. So almost 4,000 years ago in human history, God confronted a man and He said to Abram, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And in saying that, God, remember where we've been, the Creator, the Fall. Two lines, enmity between them, the flood of judgment. God, in going to Abraham, opened the way for any one of us on this planet right now. 
whether we come from a good, sturdy, solid Christian family, whether we come from the most dysfunctional parents and family system that you can imagine, whether we were raised in no religion or any of the religions or sects of the world, whether we are white or black or any other kind of contrived racial things that we make up or ethnicity and culture, He has opened the way for every human being to become an heir of the promise that He made with Abraham. And what does that promise? Even with Abraham, much less us, what does that promise ultimately rest on? On God's covenanting Himself to fulfill it. Or to say it this way, His utter faithfulness as it is expressed in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. How in the world will He not also by Him give to us all things? Oh, it's good to be in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, come to Christ. Move. Plead. And if you're in Christ, you are Abraham's children and heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your glorious moving 4,000 years ago. You did not merely say words to Abraham. You called him to yourself so that he could not not come. Oh, do that in every soul in here, oh Lord, for that is your glorious way. Glorify your name. Glorify your Son. Amen.